In the early 2000s, Colorado's hate crime laws did not include sexuality or gender identity. So in spite of a killer bragging about bug smashing a gay person, the murderer of two-spirit teen FC Martinez has been walking free since 2018. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This episode is going to deal with an alleged hate crime against a young person who belonged to the LGBTQ plus community. It is not an alleged crime. The crime happened, but it was not legally established to be a hate crime, though if we're giving opinions here, the evidence supports to me that it was. Two major sources for this episode were the Cortez Journal and a documentary called Two Spirits, which I highly recommend everybody watch. All of my sources are linked in the show notes. The case we are talking about is going to require some history and some cultural context before we get into the case. In traditional Diné beliefs, and I'm talking pre-European contact and before the Spanish dubbed them Apaches de Navajo, and before we shorten that to Navajo, the Diné believed in four basic genders. We have feminine female, masculine male, and then there were those who were born male but function in the role of a female, and the fourth gender was the reverse of that, those who were born female but function in the role of a male. That means people who are intersex, transgender, a femme man, a masculine woman, all of these fall into the third and fourth genders. The third one is the one we're going to talk about today, and that is those who are born male but function in the role of a female, and it is called natle. Translated to English, natle means changing one. The Diné were one of dozens of tribes in the Americas who did not have a gender binary. And for the Diné, gender and sexuality were linked, and the acceptance of multiple genders also meant the acceptance of homosexuality. Traditionally, the Natle would participate fully in society and held their own role, including that as a caretaker to parentless children. I have, in the course of making crime lines and looking into MMIW cases, come across a lot of stories of how traditional beliefs were lost through colonization. And this is one of those. The Diné belief that people were created in more variations beyond male and female was under attack as far back as initial contact with conquistadores. So this is something I actually didn't learn at school. Maybe you did. But the conquistadores brought with them large dogs they called war dogs. They were trained to attack, and they were used against Native Americans. In the Southwest, they murdered Natle by turning their dogs on them for nothing other than being outside of their concept of God-sanctioned gender. And to do something like that is outside of the Diné belief entirely because in their traditional beliefs, again going back pre-colonialism, the concept of evil was intentionally harming others. The Natle were members of society who helped the community and brought balance. And to use modern English words, being gay or trans or queer couldn't be evil because it didn't harm anyone. However, over time, the idea of more than two genders was replaced with the binary, even within Diné communities. 
a large part of this was the same thing that affected all traditions, and that's the boarding schools. The kids were shipped off and stripped of their language. They were sent home to parents and grandparents who didn't speak English and to a community where their history was given in a language they had been forced to forget. A large number of these residential schools were also run by Christian churches, so being not male or female, moving between those identities, or being gay was taught to be a sin. So let's fast forward roughly 100 years after the height of the boarding schools to the late 1980s and early 1990s. At this point, holding a more traditional belief about gender or sexuality may have been in the minority, but there were still indigenous people who didn't identify as male or female, and there were still gay indigenous people. A new modern term started coming up, and that is two-spirit. You may have heard it, and we have discussed it on the Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow episode from December of 2021. This term was designed to be used by all Native Americans, regardless of tribe, as a way to refer to the more complex understanding of gender that is traditional to many tribes. Not all of them, but many of them. It is not a direct synonym for transgender. It's not meant to take over or replace words from indigenous languages like Nautle. And it's not meant to be a single box for all LGBTQ plus indigenous people to check off, though many do accept it. It's a term that didn't exist that many people saw a need for in our modern society as we are navigating discussions on queer identity and where it intersects with indigenous identity. And that intersection of identities is going to come up again in this episode, because we are going to talk about the case of a young Natle. Fred Martinez, who largely went by FC, was born on March 15, 1985 in Tuba City, Arizona, which is part of the Navajo Reservation. He was named after his father, who he really looked up to. When he was little, he wanted to grow up to be just like him and be a cowboy and a railroad worker. His parents split up, and when FC was in elementary school, his mom Pauline moved him and his older brothers to Cortez, Colorado. And this was a big change, and FC didn't like it at first. He was used to running all around and burning off his energy in the endless spaces on the reservation. In Cortez, they lived in a crowded trailer park where their neighbor was just a few feet away, and FC thought the adults were too nosy. But overall, he was a happy kid who really could have fun anywhere and doing anything, so he quickly made new friends. FC's dreams of being a cowboy and a railroad worker just like his dad had started to fade, and he began dreaming of a life in the big city. Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, somewhere he could go and do something big. As FC was approaching his teen years, he asked his mom if he could have one of her purses. She told him sure and didn't think too much about it. Then later on, he asked her about using her makeup. She didn't make a big deal out of it, but she did wonder. Around the age of 13, FC told his brothers and his mother that they needed to have a family meeting because he had something to tell them. And he told them that he had a side to him that was feminine and he intended to express it. FC wasn't so much asking for permission or acceptance, but Pauline said that he was just telling them how it would be. 
Pauline told FC that she loved him no matter what, and his brothers also accepted him. But his mother told the documentary Two Spirits that his oldest brother warned him to just be careful. While many people grew up not being taught about the traditional genders, Pauline wasn't one of them, and she knew about the Natle. And after FC came out, she talked to him about it. And FC, who was proud of being Dene, really embraced this. He would wear baggy clothing, but with his hair curled and makeup on. Sometimes he would wear a bra that he would stuff to try to get some more curves. He generally went by FC and used he, him pronouns, but sometimes he went by Fred and sometimes Frederica. He was male and female in balance in a single person, and he identified both as Natle and Two-Spirit. The acceptance at home didn't translate to acceptance outside of the home. And I'm not just talking about other kids. Absolutely, he endured slurs and ugliness thrown at him by his peers. But it also came from the administration at the school as well. FC would get dress code violations for wearing clothing that the principal or a teacher would deem too feminine. So do you remember those jelly shoes that were very popular in the 80s? They get a resurgence every so often, and they had one in the late 1990s when FC was in high school. So he wore a pair to school, and his mom got a call about it. Now, she assumed that style of shoe was not allowed, kind of like how you can't wear flip-flops to run around a playground. But then Pauline was up at the school a little bit after this incident and noticed that a girl was wearing those exact style shoes. She asked why FC got in trouble for it, but the girl didn't, and she learned it wasn't the shoes that were the problem. It was that FC was the one wearing them. A school counselor later said she was not aware of the bullying FC experienced, and she felt that he would have come to her if he was struggling with it. But I think she's missing something that seems plain today that just may not have been to her at the time. When a student feels singled out and bullied by the administrators, why would they then go to the school counselor about it? The truth is they wouldn't. Regardless of the private hurt FC carried, he wouldn't give anyone, including the school administration, the satisfaction of seeing him in pain, except his closest and most trusted friends. They saw those moments, but to the outside world, he kept styling his hair the way he liked. He was wearing makeup when he felt like it and carrying his purse around, regardless of what was said to him and about him. But acting unbothered and being unbothered are two different things. At 16, FC had a dark moment where it looked like things were not ever going to get better. And he took a handful of over-the-counter medication in a cry for help. He immediately regretted it and called a friend to tell them what he had done, and he was taken to the hospital and had his stomach pumped. When FC talked to his mom, Pauline, afterwards, he told her that people hated him. And she said they didn't matter because he had a mother who did love him. And I'm not sure that Pauline knew what kind of statistical truth she was speaking. According to research conducted by the Trevor Project, indigenous LGBTQ youth are 2.5 times more likely to report a suicide attempt than their LGBTQ peers. However, the Trevor Project also reports that LGBTQ youth across the board who felt high social support from their families 
reported attempting suicide at less than half the rate of those who felt low or moderate support. A supportive family will not erase the effects of bullying, but it absolutely mitigates them. After this incident, FC received counseling and came out the other side stronger than before and more confident to live his life out loud. He did leave the high school and started taking adult education classes instead, which spared him going to the space that was the least accepting and affirming. At 16, he was working towards his GED and his future, possibly in design. On Saturday, June 16, 2001, FC told his mom that he was headed out to the annual Ute Mountain Roundup Rodeo, which is a big event in Cortez, and it includes rodeo events, live music, and a carnival. The carnival was what FC was heading to. Pauline knew FC would be out late, so she didn't wait up for him and instead went to bed. When she woke up, she realized that he wasn't home, so she called his friends to see where he was. They said they had all last seen him at the carnival, but at some point, they got separated. Pauline said she called the police twice in the next few days, once on Monday the 18th and again on Wednesday the 20th. She said she was told that they would call her if they heard anything or saw FC around. The police would later say they had no record of either of these calls. They said that Pauline didn't call them until after Thursday the 21st, five days after FC went missing. This date is significant because that's the day his body was found. Two kids were running around a canyon area on the edge of town looking for lizards when they came across a body. They ran home and told the adults who thought they were making up stories, just a little imaginary adventure that they had dreamed up. But one of their fathers decided that afternoon to go check in just in case and realized They were not playing around. He then called the police. The area FC was found was not far off the road, but it was below the rim of the canyon, meaning it wasn't visible to passerbys. His body was found face up, and his hands were holding his stomach. It was apparent he had been bludgeoned in the head and face. His throat, wrists, and stomach also had slash wounds. There was a bloody rock near the body, a large one weighing around 25 pounds, and there was also a trail of blood going down the hill that led to the body. Had FC been attacked and dragged down into the canyon, or had he tried to climb up it after he had been bleeding? It seemed unclear. On autopsy, it was determined that FC had died from blunt force trauma and exposure. Whoever attacked him left him to die, incapacitated by the attack. Pauline was notified that FC's body had been found on the 25th, four days after it was discovered. The investigation showed that FC had very likely been killed the same night he had last been seen alive, first at the carnival and then later the investigation showed he had gone to a party that same night. 
When the news got out that a body had been found in the canyon and it was a 16-year-old who was identified as gay and two-spirit, the local LGBTQ community showed up for Pauline and the family. One of these people was John Peters Campbell, who had always felt safe in Cortez as an openly gay man. As he told the Cortez Journal, he had even gotten supportive phone calls after the 1998 murder of Matthew Shepard. And these were neighbors telling him to let them know if he or his partner ever felt threatened in the community, they would take care of it. But John realized that his experience as a male-presenting, middle-class white man would not be the same as a Nathalie teenager, particularly one from a single-parent home that was supported just by his mom's housekeeping job at a local motel. This opened up the eyes of the Cortez LGBTQ community that they needed to focus more on intersectionality and make sure they were open and welcoming to people from all walks of life. But even as they were working on those conversations, they had a more urgent situation to handle. Pauline needed support. And they wanted to make sure that the police didn't write this case off as a poor gay Native American and not investigate properly. They also didn't want the media to misrepresent or misreport in a way that contributed negatively to the community. So PFLAG came in to help Pauline out, and PFLAG is an organization of parents, family, and friends who stand in support of the LGBTQ community. And one thing they have are parents whose children were victims of hate crimes, and they will fly in and provide that support to the family, that support that only someone who has gone through the same thing can really give. They also had a media representative from GLAAD come out to Cortez. GLAAD is the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. She was able to manage the media, but also sit with Pauline to make sure she was being heard as a victim in this case when it came to the police and the DA. It was just three years before this that GLAAD had done the same things in the Matthew Shepard case, and while FC's case never got the same national media attention to that degree, locally the community rallied. But there were a lot of people in the larger Cortez community who shied away from jumping to calling this a hate crime right away. At the time, Colorado's laws didn't extend to sexual orientation or gender identity anyway. But it did include race, so they would have to believe, legally speaking, that FC was targeted because of his race for this to be a hate crime. But beyond discussing the legalities of a hate crime, let's talk about what that even means. I like that Colorado law calls it bias-motivated attack because that's what it really is. It's that the attack is motivated by a bias, not to the individual, but to the community they belong to. And because that crime was targeted at that community, it impacts them by instilling fear. It sends a message that they are not safe. And because the impact of this crime is extending farther out, there can be, depending on jurisdiction, sentencing enhancements with a bias-motivated crime or a hate crime. And I understand that no community would want to be known as the town that has hate festering. 
But Mark Larson, who was the state house rep who represented Cortez at the time, said he saw racial attacks on Native Americans, particularly with the youth, that were violent. So he wasn't willing to rule this out as being a hate crime initially, and he wanted to wait on the investigation. Now, I'll mention something about Mark Larson. He was the first Republican lawmaker to co-sponsor a hate crimes bill in Colorado that would include sexuality and gender identity. At this point, bills like this were presented pretty much annually in Colorado, and the lawmakers would vote them down. But I have to imagine that Mark Larson essentially crossing party lines to not just support the bill, but to co-sponsor one of them really did help move the needle on it finally passing a few years later. But that would be too late in FC's case. If they determined this was a bias-motivated attack on FC, it wouldn't be charged that way unless the bias was against him as an indigenous person, not as a gay or two-spirit person. To learn the motive, they would have to find the killer, which, in this case, actually didn't take very long. A Crime Stoppers tip came in early in the investigation that named 18-year-old Sean Murphy as someone who was bragging about killing FC. Except he didn't refer to FC by name because he didn't know FC before that night. He instead referred to him by the F-slur. This tip sent detectives down to Farmington, New Mexico. It's about an hour and 15 minutes south of Cortez, and that is where Sean was living. While they were watching Sean's apartment on July 3rd, 2001, they saw another man, Clint Sanchez, leave the apartment carrying a dark bag. They followed him to a gas station where he dumped a pair of shoes, two belts, and a white shirt into a dumpster. When the police recovered these items, they saw that the shoes had blood on them. They pulled Clint over and arrested him for carrying a concealed firearm. With Clint in lockup, they asked him if he was willing to talk about the FC Martinez case, and he agreed to tell them what he knew. He was not going to cover up for Sean Murphy. According to Clint, Sean was in Cortez on the night of June 16th in order to sell meth at the rodeo. The two attended a party that night where they may have seen FC. Later on that night, they were driving around when they saw F.C. walking near the high school. They pulled over and offered him a ride. They went to a convenience store, and Clint went in, leaving Sean and F.C. in the car. They were alone for a few minutes. Clint got back in the car, and they dropped F.C. off at a corner near where Clint and Sean were staying, which was just about half a mile from F.C.'s home, so less than a 10-minute walk. Clint and Sean drove to the friend's apartment. On the drive, Clint and Sean talked about FC being gay, and Clint wondered out loud if FC thought he and Sean were also gay. Sean left the apartment soon after they arrived, saying he was going out to get a joint. He was gone for about 20 minutes and came back with blood on his hands and clothes. They asked him what happened, and he said he had gotten into a fight and that he left the other person lying in the pits, which was the local name for the area where FC's body was found. Sean then took a shower, changed out of his bloody clothes, and a friend drove Sean and Clint back to Farmington. 
Sean went on to brag to people that he beat up a gay person, bug smashing them, though of course he used a slur in how he described this. And then after FC's body was found, Sean started boasting that he had actually killed him. Though Sean lived over an hour away from Cortez, he was from the area and he was known to the police as he had already gotten a record by the age of 18. When he came on the radar for FC's murder, he was on probation for something else. And his behavioral issues went back even farther than that. He had been expelled from middle school in the sixth grade. That's about 11 or 12 years old for those not in the U.S. He was then expelled from the high school and then the alternative school. Whatever his needs were were not being met, and now here he was at 18, a suspect in a murder. The police picked Sean up and asked him about the night of the killing. He denied he was even in Cortez at the time, and his mother backed him up on this. She was initially willing to be his alibi, and she's the reason why juries don't believe mothers when they alibi their children. Sean was absolutely in Cortez at the time, which he and his mother later admitted. Sean was arrested and extradited to Colorado. The day after his arrest, the funeral for FC was held. Pauline put two photos on his casket, one of him presenting masculine and the other one feminine in honor of his two spirits. His obituary included all of his names, Fred, FC, and Frederica. On July 9th, Sean Murphy was arraigned with his mother, his grandmother, his girlfriend, and his daughter there to support him. FC's family was not there because they weren't told about the hearing. According to the DA, the issue was that he wasn't told about what time the arraignment would be until the last minute. He said he didn't find out until that morning while he was already at the courthouse and they pulled him in for it. He told the Cortez Journal that the police knew when it was going to be, but no one got that information to his office. The court clerk told the journal that that wasn't true. He had been told. Maybe he didn't pass the information on to his staff, who would generally be the ones to personally call the family. Perhaps the breakdown was in his office, but the court clerk said it definitely was not with the court. This issue was escalated to a formal complaint that Pauline's rights as a victim were violated, and it wasn't the only issue being raised. FC's autopsy reports had shown up at the DA's office on July 23rd. It took weeks before the family was told what was in there, but the DA said that was also not his fault. They got to the office on the 23rd, but he wasn't there. He himself didn't go over them until he was back in the office on August 2nd, and no one else can pass this information on to Pauline until he had gone over it first. He denied the accusation that his office was not keeping Pauline in the loop as the case made it through the legal system, like her complaint stated. The goal of this complaint had very little to do with punishing past actions and more to do with making sure the DA's office kept Pauline in the front of their minds in the future and that they were respecting her rights as the mother of a murdered child. 
But this was not the only controversial issue in this case that was being covered by the media. And this goes back to the Cortez Journal being a major source in this case. The other issue that everyone was discussing was, was this a hate crime or a bias-motivated attack or not? Now, I'm not talking legally because, like I keep mentioning, Colorado did not include sexual orientation or gender identity in the law at the time. But just because the court wasn't going to debate it didn't mean that the community wasn't. And people were asking, was this murder a crime motivated by homophobia or transphobia? On one hand, the investigation uncovered evidence that it was. Evidence like Sean Murphy using slurs when he told people about what he did. But then there was also evidence that maybe the primary motive was robbery, as he also stole $40 from FC. A bit of a side note here, since it doesn't necessarily apply to this case, but Colorado law at the time required a hate crime to be 100% bias-motivated. But since 2021, the law only requires that bias be one factor, and it doesn't have to be the sole motivator. So attacking someone because they're gay and stealing their $40 would not mean it wasn't a hate crime. But these are the types of conversations happening in Cortez. Issues surrounding this case, like intersectionality within the LGBTQ community, the place of the LGBTQ community within the larger Cortez community, hate crime legislation, all of those were being litigated in the local paper, in coffee shops, and across fences as this was a big case in the area. And all of that was happening while the legal side was happening in the courthouse. At Sean Murphy's preliminary hearing in September 2001, the defense indicated that he was going with an affirmative defense, and that was going to be self-defense. Basically, his story was that he and FC, who had never met each other that night other than Sean and his friend giving FC a ride, were hanging out down in the canyon, and they got into a fight. Sean hit FC with the rock in self-defense in a situation of mutual combat. When he left, he didn't know FC would die as he was alive at the time. Now, while we will never know exactly what happened in that canyon, I don't think Sean's version is in line with the evidence. For one thing, Sean was only gone for about 20 minutes. In that time, he just so happened to bump into FC, go down into the canyon, have a fight break out, hit FC numerous times with the rock in self-defense, and then go back to his friend's house. The sequence of events local advocate John Peters Campbell gave to the documentary Two Spirits makes a bit more sense. He said that after Sean came upon FC, whether on purpose or accidentally, he started chasing him. FC was familiar with the canyon area since it was close to his house and it was a popular teen hangout spot. He would have known the area and he may have felt he could hide in there. At some point, FC was trying to climb up the hillside to get away from Sean, but he was pulled back down where Sean hit him. FC either crawled or was dragged into a hollow where Sean then picked up the 25-pound rock which he would have needed two hands to handle, and repeatedly beat FC with it. Though Sean claimed FC was alive when he left the scene, he had to have known based on the severity of the injuries that FC was immobile and unconscious. The closest to explaining this was Sean saying he was drunk that night. 
In the end, Sean stuck to his story that this was a mutual fight and not a one-sided attack. In February 2002, he pleaded guilty in a plea deal that lowered the charge from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. They also dropped a charge that he was facing for attempting to escape as he awaited trial. He was facing a sentence of anywhere from four years to 48 years behind bars. At sentencing, Pauline addressed Sean directly, telling him that he took her child away. She got graphic in confronting him with how he crushed FC in the head and had to have felt his skull fracture. And then he left him there to die. As the family wondered where FC was for a week, Sean was busy bragging about what he did. Pauline asked the judge to sentence Sean Murphy to the maximum. The DA joined the family in asking for the maximum penalty. Though the attempted escape charge was not prosecuted, it was brought up at sentencing. Sean had tried to cut through the jail bars. Also, while awaiting trial, he had threatened to assault a guard. This was someone who would need a lot of time to be rehabilitated. Sean's mother spoke on his behalf, trying to mitigate any argument that he targeted FC for his sexuality. She said that she was a lesbian and Sean was not homophobic. He accepted her and he accepted her partners, some of whom were also Native American. But I do want to interrupt her real quick here because this is not how it works. A lot of people out there have what I call their exceptions. They are racist, but not against Joe, who's, you know, one of the good ones. They're homophobic, but, you know, Rebecca and Allison don't count because they're really nice neighbors and they're not that butch. This happens all the time. It's part of why people saying they can't be racist because they have a black best friend is seen as so ignorant. Making an exception for the people in your life does not change the bias you have or the treatment you give to the people you don't know. And beyond that, I'm going to tell you something that any trans person could tell you. Not being homophobic is not the same thing as not being transphobic. Being gay does not make someone not transphobic. Just Google trans exclusion in the gay community if you want to read more about it. Sean could absolutely have loved and accepted his lesbian mother while still having a bias against FC. But Sean said he did not. He said he had just gone down in the canyon to smoke a joint with FC, someone he barely knew, and there was a fight that left FC dead. He called it a, quote, terrible mistake. In front of the judge, he called it a terrible mistake. In front of his friends, he boasted about it. And I don't think the judge missed that observation. She told Sean that he had a choice after he left that canyon. He could have called even anonymously to let first responders know that FC was hurt in that canyon. He could have possibly saved FC's life, but he didn't. Instead, he took a shower, got changed, and went home. The judge then gave Sean Murphy a 40-year sentence, which is much closer to the maximum than the minimum. The advocates in this case were pleased with this outcome. Their goal was a sentence long enough that Pauline would never bump into her son's murderer on the street in her lifetime. And it looked like they got that. But they didn't. In May 2018, after 17 years in prison, and after having served less than half his sentence, Sean Murphy was released on parole. 
He beat a 16-year-old with a 25-pound rock and left him to die, and he served only 17 years. When his release was reported in the media over a year later, he was 36 years old and living about eight hours from Cortez in Greeley, Colorado. But as one of the advocates in the case, Kathy Renna, told PBS after the release of the documentary Two Spirits, FC's real gift and legacy is that documentary. And that from the pain and grief and horror of what happened to FC Martinez, some good will come from it as people begin to think differently about those who are around them. I will leave links in the show notes of where you can rent the film. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.